Welcome, everyone. Season two, episode two of Stats Over Podcast. I'm going to be doing a lot of the talking today. Tim, don't roll your eyes. Everyone else listening, you probably knew this is going to happen sooner or later. Look, there's a lot to talk about, right? And it feels like whenever we talk about things that are going on in the sporting world, there's always some stuff that's got some good causes behind it. And there's some stuff that just kind of, you know, pitter patters. It, it goes through. We can talk about baseball is back. We can talk about the NBA. We can talk about the Celtics. I mean, they won tonight, but they've been struggling and slumping a little bit lately. But it doesn't feel right if we're not going to talk about some pretty momentous things, which are follow-ups to what we've already talked about on this podcast. So today, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about NCAA. Because if we think that the most dramatic season was last year, you ain't seen nothing yet. Buckle up, Buttercup. we got a ways to go. Tonight, in this episode, I'm also going to talk about the Atlanta Dream. they got a new owner. It's very important. We're going to talk about it some follow-up earlier. In my cup imperial stout from jay wakefield out of miami florida it's called toss it into the fire it is an imperial stout with blueberries coconut and vanilla added now if you're any bit of a, a you know a fantasy movies books fan you you know of course toss in the fire is the very famous line that was uttered in the movie lord of the rings to toss the one ring that would rule them all into the fires of mordor Isildur didn't do it, and well, I'm not going to tell you how it ends, but there's about three, six, nine, ten, a whole lot of books, a lot of movies, a whole lot of subreddits, take a look at it, but really, really excited to get into this. Um, let's go ahead and, ooh, we've been hearing a lot of, hey, you haven't been doing stouts, so this is this is us giving the people what they want. We're a podcast of the people, so we're giving you the stouts. Off the nose, a lot of vanilla. Not so much in the coconut, a little bit of burnt coconut. I don't really like smell too much of the blueberry. And that kind of worries me a little bit. We'll see what happens. Okay. The blueberry is there. Nice and strained. Definitely more of the coconut and vanilla flavors. I don't hate it at all. It's nice to have uh, an imperial stout. You got a lot of the adjuncts in there. Um, you know, what would I rate this? I'm going to have to give this like a, like a 4-3. Yeah, I'm not really a big stout guy. I don't really have a lot of frame of reference. Imperial stouts usually for me are like too syrupy or too boozy. This is like kind of in, in in between, but I really kind of wanted a little more of the blueberry flavor. And it's not saying it's not good because it is. Um, want a little bit more of the blueberry flavor for sure. So Jay Wakefield, quick little uh, brewer shout out here. Miami, Florida. If you've ever been to Miami, uh, yes, it is a beach town. Yes, it is a sports town. And it's also a craft beer town. There's, there's a lot that you can find there. Um, a lot of art murals downtown in the Wynwood area. Uh, it's like an arts district. There's a lot of small shops, restaurants. And of course, you got Jay Wakefield Brewing right there. Now, if you've been inside Jay Wakefield Brewing, you notice the graffiti and the beautiful paintings all over the wall. And you're going to notice a lot of Star Wars themed uh, paintings on the wall. There's a uh, Han Solo frozen in carbonite. It's actually uh, in the middle of the bar. It's it's crazy good. But Jay Wakefield has been known, you know, they're they're kind of known for their hazies and, and their sours um, and, and their stouts too. Every year they hold Wakefest, which is one of their craft beer festivals. I highly recommend you check it out. I haven't been there yet um, to Wakefest. I did go to um, Jay Wakefield last year, actually. My wife and I went to Miami early in 2020 when things were much, much different, right? We had no idea what was going to you know, come down the pike, but uh yeah, definitely go check out Jay Wakefield. Yeah, it's a fantastic place. The, the beer is great. And uh, anytime you can get your hands on it, you definitely should. That's why I got this. Shout out to the brew shop in Arlington. 
uh, Virginia, they, they had some Jay Wakefield that came in and I happened to snag a bottle. So, I mean, this is 10%. I'm going to definitely be sipping on it. Cause I think the more that I rant and rave, you're, you're definitely going to know that the blueberries might not be there, but the booze will. So you probably remember a while back in one of our episodes, we talked about, especially this past summer at the height of the black lives matter movement, when there were protests um, in many cities across America and the amount of divisive language that was coming from one Senator Kelly Leffler, who was a co-owner of the Atlanta dream, a, a woman's national basketball team. She pretty much said that, uh, you know, stand for the flag. You, you know, there is going to be things that we should be standing up for. Um, and we should not remove the flag from the national discussion sports unify us. And we should be, we should be focused on that. That, that was the general gist, right? You, I, I encourage you to go back and listen to the episode. And I, and I said, listen, you know, Senator Leffler, listen to your players. They're telling you that they want you to take an active stance as an owner and they want to have these conversations with you. And you're kind of, you know, giving them the Heisman stance. You're not, you're not wanting to have that conversation with them. It seemed at the time that there was going to be a lot of uncertainty about how that was going to pass, right? You have an owner of a team that clearly is not really in line with the players and the players who clearly were not happy with their owner. But of course, you're playing a professional sports team. So the question is, where do you toe the line and how much do you sort of go along with it? This was when a one Reverend Raphael Warnock was like a Democratic challenger that everyone thought had a, a snowball's chance in hell, really, at sort of winning. And what members of the Atlanta Dream and the WNBA and, and largely um, a lot of sports people writ large decided to do was put their their collective weight, social media, influencing and support behind Revan Warnock. He won in a runoff in January of 21 for a Senate seat, which was massive considering the, the politics that happened with the new president coming at the time. You just look at all of it and it's sort of like, wow, a WNBA team said, not only do we not like our owner, but we're going to go ahead and support her primary challenger. And, you know, for whatever credit, I guess you can give the politicians when they decide to finally concede, um, which she did. You kind of thought, where do we go from here? Are we going to sell the team? There was obviously a lot more that was going on at the time um, in the country. I think we, we all, we all remember that, that part of November very well. So, it came as a, a little bit of a shock that um, a couple days ago, right here, here we are into the first week of March, a couple days ago, the WNBA approved the sale of its Atlanta Dream franchise to a new ownership group. And that new ownership group did not include former U.S. Senator Kelly Leffler. That's a really big deal, right? Um, there's not been a statement to, to my knowledge that's been put out, but the woman who has bought out that stake was a former WNBA player. And that is just absolutely fantastic. I think there needs to be more women ownership in, in sports as a whole, you know, sidebar shout out to Sarah Spain with, uh, you know, her ownership stake in the NWSL team out there in Chicago. We need more of this. We need more inclusiveness in the owners of our teams. Uh, it's not just the optics of it. It's not just, we're trying to go for uh, look, there are black players on a team, so we need a black owner. It's, it's not cut and dry like that. It's about having the opportunities for everyone. And I think this was one of the examples where 
all parties probably got what they wanted. Um, do people want to own sports teams? Of course they do, right? It's, it's what a lot of professional athletes want to do, whether that's because they don't want to be told what to do by owners and they want to you know, own a team themselves and think about how they're going to go through it. it it's, it's a sports dream I think a lot of people have. I mean, Aaron Rodgers has ownership stake in a team. Patrick Mahomes has ownership stake in a team, as do many others. For someone to speak so loudly and say, you know, we should not be kneeling for the national anthem and we should not be talking about Black Lives Matter, which is a racist and Marxist and divisive movement. And those were quotes that she gave. Um, it, I, I said at the time, I just thought it was super tone deaf. You know, talk to your players. Shahid Khan of the Jacksonville Jaguars at the height of the anthem kneeling controversy, even though Mr. Khan was a Donald Trump donor in 2016, he, he went into the locker room. And he talked to Clayus Campbell and he said, I support you guys. And that's what you do as an owner. You, you realize that what's best for the company is what's best for the people that make up the company. Yes, you have shareholders, right? And, and you need to make sure that obviously you're profitable as a business, but there are things that you need to pay attention to. And that's one of them. You, you can't have people that work for you not be happy. Um, you just can't. And I don't know if that's an antiquated rule of business and people think that's like, just the way it goes. And I'm the owner and you need to listen to me, but it was a momentous turn. It was a terrible turn of events for former Senator Leffler. I mean, you go from talking about how your opponent is a communist, you know, pretty much that's kind of paraphrasing what she said, but I encourage you to look it up and you, you battle with your players and social media, but you don't talk to them directly. And then fast forward another six or seven months and you no longer have a spot in the Senate and you no longer have an ownership in a team. Uh, I'm not saying these things are connected. What I am saying is that I believe that the, the sale to a new ownership group is, is a fantastic thing. Um, it is great that players could use their voice. And I think oftentimes a lot of people believe that athletes progress to a certain point physically in order to be able to entertain. And they don't, they I can't say that they don't think it, that they mature intellectually, but I think that's where the shut up and dribble comments come in all the time, right? Oh, you, you get played millions of dollars to play a game. They don't look at the grind necessarily of what it takes to get there with all the sports camps and the injuries. And I mean, quite frankly, in, in some of these, you know, sports leagues, we are playing in the minors, you're not making any money whatsoever. So it makes total sense when you get to the big leagues that you ink those big contracts and, and you're worth that money that you're paying. Um, but this is, this is a very, very momentous uh, day, I think, in, in sports ownership. And I'm not going to be like, oh, my God, why did the media cover it more? Like LeBron James tweeted about it. There have been many players who have talked about it. Uh, it's not one of the most interesting stories that's going on right now in America. But I do think it, it warrants a lot of research. So I, I would encourage everyone to go out there and just read up on the sale of the Atlanta dream to a new ownership group and just realize that when it comes to protests, when it comes to political and cultural discussions, when it comes to where you want to be in the right side or the wrong side in history, being on the right or the wrong side does not equate to left or right. It doesn't equate to Republican or Democrat. To me, it, it equates as an individual to what's morally right. And when you have a team that's saying, we're going to dedicate our season to victims of police violence. We're going to educate and we're going to learn their stories and we're going to take time on the court to give them a moment of silence. And we're going to continue to advocate and educate. 
against systemic racism, the knee-jerk reaction to that cannot be stop doing it for clicks or doing it for likes or shut up and dribble, you play a game. The reaction should be, hmm, why are professional athletes telling us the things that we need to do? How far have we slipped as a society when we think we can only receive lessons from one group of people? And then who is that group of people? Because I believe that athletes can be in that group because that group is Americans. That's what they are. I said earlier that I um, wasn't tasting the blueberry. Now I taste the blueberry. Still going to keep the 4-3, though, but uh, I definitely, definitely like it. It's, it's very smooth, especially for an Imperial. And it's a big 22-ounce bomber. So there has not ever been anything more pressing in the arena of college sports than I think the debate of name, image, and likeness for decades. I, geez, I don't know, a century. What we've been talking about is that college players are amateurs. They shouldn't receive money. They shouldn't receive sponsorship deals. And quite frankly, I think, you know, the, the typical reaction is you got paid to go to school, which is not really the case, right? You, you go to a university, you rack up a tuition bill, you rack up a, a room and board bill, and a scholarship, if you go to one of those big Division One schools and you're afforded an athletic scholarship, covers that. That's not a reality for a lot of student athletes in America. It just isn't. And like the fact that the NCAA has had decades upon decades since the rise of amateurism, I think, you know, at least from the 70s, 1970s, They've had plenty of time to come together with a comprehensive plan to find a way to bridge the gap, and they haven't. They've said, listen, we're going to ink this super expensive TV deal. We're going to give college coaches million-dollar shoe deals, and you're going to be lucky that you get to play for them. When you have college coaches whose contracts are being bought out, but there's not enough money to conduct campus repairs or you know, fund other programs, but you can buy out Tom Herman's 30-some-odd million dollars. There are questions about priorities and there are questions about how much do we want this institution to just be upheld and how much do we want to take a look at it and peel back the onion in a couple layers and say, okay, this might be a little rotten. We might need to take care of this because they've had, they've had the time they've had the years. Uh, every time that a new TV deal comes out, the sec, the ACC, the big 12, the PAC 12, they do whatever they can to make sure that they get that income, that revenue. And then on the other side, you have the boosters, who arguably are just as powerful as the people that are handing these colleges their TV deals because their endowments arguably keep those colleges alive. Always going back to the point that for the NFL, you got to be three years removed from high school. So you need to play a couple of years in college. And therein lies what we would call a loophole. You've got this dilemma. I'm going to go play at the University of uh, Texas at Austin. I'm going to go play for Florida State. I'm going to play for the Crimson Tide in Alabama. I'm going to play for the University of Buffalo. I'm going to play for the University of Maine. I'm going to play for UW. I'm going to play for Oregon. I'm going to play for USC. You have standards that comes with that. You have dreams that you build off of that. And if you are one of those select few athletes who gets to be even ranked by 24-7 as a college recruit, your dream of making it in professional sports hinges entirely on what you're able to do in college. You put more effort 
in figuring out where to go to college so that you can get an education, of course, but you also want your path to professional stardom. It's an uneasy agreement. Come put your body on the line and we will cover your tuition and room and board. It's not a fair agreement. It's never been a fair agreement. Even with players that are on high-profile squads, LSU, Alabama, Clemson, Texas, Texas Tech, UW, USC, right, Cal, all of those schools that are, that are super big and, and they have their, those TV deals, Notre Dame, they're asking you, go out there, play a very physical sport, risk injury, and in three years you might have a shot at the NFL. Even knowing that 1% of the Division I football athletes actually make it to the NFL. And of that 1%, there's not a lot that actually stay for long because the average NFL career is like two and a half to three years. So there's a lot that's riding on this one-sided agreement, which is you'll come here, we'll put you in a dorm, we'll give you cafeteria food, and you won't have to pay for books or tuition. And on the, on the surface, it sounds like that, that's a great thing, but it doesn't, doesn't pay up for the fact that there are students whose lives are irrevocably changed by injuries in the game. And if they don't make it to the NFL and they decide that they can no longer afford that school, then, then they're left with debt if they continue to try and go on. Or if some off-the-field stuff happens and the coach and you know the team decides that they're going to move on without them, then then what? Then, then that, that falls around like a stigma. There's, there's no real rehabilitation there. It's like it's kind of you got one shot, and if you mess it up, then it's, it's completely over. And I understand that there's a big subset of America that says, again, you get played – you get paid to play a game. So there are things that you really shouldn't be bitching about. This is not one of those things. And for the name, image, and likeness to finally make it um, and be introduced in bills in California and in Florida, I think Mark Emmett, as the, the head of the NCAA, is going to have to come to grips with that. But let's be real. They, they should have come to grips with this for a long time. And they've had many years to come up with a plan for how to strike a middle ground, how to how to pay players, maybe a stipend, but they, they rely on this interpretation of what being an amateur is to their advantage. And I wonder if the day comes where you do have a couple high profile teams and, you know, with everything we saw with COVID-19 last year, you, you saw entire leagues either postpone delay or cancel, you know, their football season. That was a, a big loss in revenue. And to be fair, a lot of industries lost revenue, but you can't really continue on and say, well, you play a game, you can get tuition. When the school is making millions of dollars off of a TV deal, when coaches make millions of dollars off of shoe deals, but a player can't because their eligibility will be yanked if they do that. So when we're talking about the NCAA, it's not just name image likeness. That's a big deal. There's been a lot that's been going on in college football this week. A couple of big things. If you are familiar with the University of Texas, Austin, you'll know that they have a fight song. It's called the Eyes of Texas. Similar to how the Corps of Cadets at uh, Giga Maggie's Texas A&M, they sing. Uh, similar to how during the Army-Navy game, you want to sing second so you can sing your school's song. School songs are a very, very clear bedrock part of college sports. They just are. Texas's song, the Eyes of Texas, has come under scrutiny for having language in it that is reminiscent of menstrual time shows. Those are racist in nature. And when players have decided to use their voice about it, just as the same way when Colin Kaepernick decided to protest, Jesus, uh, almost five years ago now, can't even believe it's been that long. The backlash was the same. It's like, no matter the conversations we've had that 
the other side hasn't come to the table. They haven't done education. They haven't, they haven't tried to figure this, this, this side out. They just say, you play a game, shut up. And emails from Texas donors goes to just highlight the language that they want to reinforce. And is it tradition? Of course. But it's also, I had it this way and it can't possibly change. And if you try and change it, then we have, we have problems. Um, it's really, really not appropriate. Am I saying that, that, that we're, we're trying to replace the song? Yes. I, I do think that there is something that is, that is wrong with the song. And I do believe that people should take a look at these things. Like we are deep into 2021 already. And I know you're, you're, you're going to say like, we're only a few months into 2021 and when we are 2020 took like five years. I don't know if you guys were, were here with us for that, but uh, it's going to go down as a, as a long time for that year specifically. But I would say for the last five, six, 10 years in America, race has been a conversation that's been brought to the forefront and it's been talked about just enough to stop it from bubbling over. And then we allow the cup to be half full and we don't, we don't empty the cup, right? We just allow things to keep going in it. And we just say, uh, I mean, it's, it's racial in nature, but I'm not trying to get canceled. I'm not trying to say anything about it. So we'll, we'll let it lie. And hopefully, you know, the controversy will die down and we'll keep going. Yet you have players from the University of Texas who are getting racist DMs from people who are purportedly donors to the school that say like, you will sing the song or like bad things will happen to you. You won't have a career. You know, you're very fortunate to be playing, you know, things like that. And this is just scratching the surface. Uh, CBS Sports has a collection of emails from UT alumni donors. And the Texas Tribune originally broke that story. Um, 70% of the nearly 300 people who emailed the university president about the eyes of Texas demanded the school keep playing it. That's a, that's a quote from their website specifically. And 75 of those 300 people threatened to stop supporting the school financially. Now, a University of Texas, this is Caliber, they have almost half a million living alumni, and they have a pretty big endowment, and I'm sure that they want to keep that going. A few problems with that. Half a million people, if they were thinking the wrong way, doesn't make something right. And when there are players that decide to speak up, and those players who are the ones that are bringing the TV deals in, and let's not get that conflated. You may have donated something to help keep the lights on or the grounds kept or a new stadium built. That is where your involvement ends. You are not out there on the field. You are not putting your body in the line. You are not calling plays. You're not grinding film. You're not lifting. You are not stretching. You are not doing ice bath workouts. So that's not even a word. You're not, you're not, you're not sitting in, in the ice bath to cool down after your workouts. You're donating. You're, you're essentially saying, I'm giving money to the school because you gave me a chance, right? And I want to keep the school going. That's it. You don't have any more influence beyond that. Your dollar, whether it's $1, whether it's $500,000, whether it's $2 million, does not equate to the influence that you have. And look, I'm just going to say like it is, in a lot of very, very heavy sports leagues, we have allowed people and their influence based on how much money they make to attempt to sway or lobby uh, very much in the same way that politics is. So, you know, there's always been the joke about the SEC, but 
you have people that call into these radio shows who are donors and, and that's, that's their, that's their claim to fame. They, they have a lot of money and they, they donate $57,000 a year to XYZ university. Well, that's great. Let's name a library after you, but don't tell me the books I can have in the library. Like once you gave me the money because it's a donation, that's, that's where it ends. It has nothing more to do with that. And players should not be receiving threatening DMS from people saying, you're not going to have a career because you don't want to sing the eyes of Texas. But if you have a question about the eyes of Texas, it's very similar to a song because it's sung to the hymn of a childhood classic. I've been working on the railroad and I don't know if you know this, but it was a minstrel song as well called the Levy song in which the N word was muttered at least twice. And it's kind of, it's one of those things that like when you, when you, when you pull back the layers of the onions and, and you just look at it a little bit, you just think to yourself, okay, nothing wrong with having a fight song. Nothing wrong with saying, I hate LSU. We're going to go ahead and stomp them out. You can put all that in the media. You can get your, your clicks and your likes. You can come up with the song. Simply saying that we're going to sing a song to the tune of Levy song, which is what working on the railroad is based off of. Levy song is a minstrel song, okay? And it caricatured African-American laborers who built levy and railroad systems in the 19th and 20th centuries. And this is from Medium. It's an article on Medium that I'm reading this from. That's a quote. It, it talks so much in that song about the exploitive nature of American expansionism and how the railroads were built. And the fact that people who built those railroads, who were not just uh, black, by the way, there were Asian and, and other minorities that were treated just as bad, but there were minstrel songs that were written. And the, this university's fight song is written in the style and sung to the tune of that. And that is unacceptable. 2021, you can't come up with something different. You can't look back at UT Austin's sprawling history and find something to change it with. Like, I, I just, I find that very difficult to accept and comprehend. And I'm a white dude. I wouldn't feel comfortable singing that song. I don't think any amount of beer could make me feel that I was comfortable singing that song. The moment I did a little bit of research and realized, yeah, I shouldn't be singing this. And if you look and you dig deep enough, there's a lot of those things out there um, in, in which you should educate yourself for. But let's get back to the point here. If you're a donor and you're giving money, thank you for giving money. That's where your influence ends. It doesn't permit you to tell players how they should live their life. And, and unfortunately, in this age of social media, if someone has an account, you can reach out to them. Uh, we all know that there is, you know, numerous players whose previous texts or, you know, social media postings from when they were young, you know, get, uh, get put out there and everyone can see that for the world. And then there's calls to cancel them. And, you know, there's a lot of remorse that goes on and a lot of learning. We do need to focus on those things. So if a player was to say something racist and we say, you know what, as a donor, like yank that person's scholarship. Well, that, that's, that's great. Thanks for your opinion. But you're not the one paying for that person's scholarship because that money doesn't directly go to them. It goes through other things. But if we say, well, this, this song's racist, we need to change it. The immediate reaction should not be, no, we can't. And here's why. If, you're not willing to take the time and recognize that the song's origins are, I'm just going to say it, fucking problematic.
you have to think about these things in a different light and you can't be afraid to have difficult conversations. And if you are, then you need to be willing to have that serious, uncomfortable conversation. Um, I'll just leave you with one of these, one of these letters here that a donor actually sent to the UT president. Okay. And this is from burntorangenation.com, which is SB nation page for university of Texas. And of course, all these emails that were sent are part of the public record. So they can be, they can be viewed. All right. Which is even more crazy when you think about this, but this is, this is a quote, and this is going to be tough for me to read. So, uh, I mean, take this for what it is quote. It's time for you to put your foot down and make it perfectly clear that the heritage of Texas will not be lost. One donor wrote, it is sad that it is, a, that it is offending the blacks. As I said before, the blacks are free and it's time for them to move on to another state where everything is in their favor, unquote. First off, if I was a president of a university and I got that email, I would talk to whatever foundation, you know, arranges that money. And I would say, find this guy or gal, refund their money. Reject the next time they, they donate anything to us. Maybe that's me. Maybe I'm idealistic, but... For that person, whatever age they happen to be, whatever socioeconomic status they might happen to belong to, for them to say, it is sad that it is offending the Blacks, they, they need to realize they're free and they should move on to another state where everything is in their favor. We have 54 states and territories where everything should be in everyone's favor because we are one of the best nations on the face of this earth. Why are we telling people and lumping them in a group and saying... If they don't like it, they can go somewhere else. If you don't like it, you can take your money somewhere else. You're a donor. You gave money. That's where your influence ends. I won't, I won't bitch anymore about this. But I, I hope, because this is just one of these letters that was, that was found. If you, if you are one of those people who wrote those letters, you got, you got a lot of soul searching to do. Well, we can't talk about the, the bad stuff that, uh, that Texas is going through without talking about another team that actually a lot of crazy stuff happened. Uh, there was a report that came out today. All right. USA Today actually broke it first. Talked about former LSU coach Les Miles. There was an investigation about improper contact with female students. It was a probe in 2013. Now you only have to hit the Google machine to find that LSU and scandal kind of go together like bread and butter. Um, it's unfortunate, but there are a lot of things. And we talked about influence already in college sports. There are a lot of things that happen, and a lot of people get those things misconstrued. They don't do their research. They come up with these, you know, slick taglines like Don Imus had one for a group of women from the Rutgers basketball team, which is so heinous. I'm not even gonna, not even gonna repeat it. But people, people believe it's our duty on Saturday to just watch these players, and I have a number, and I, I can say, way to go, thirteen. But I don't care that 13 is Sam Smith or Tim Cronin. I, I don't care that 13 came from a socioeconomic status and is trying to make it to the professional sports leagues to make life better for their family. I don't care about that. I care about you beating the other team that's in the field that day. There are too many aspects to this game that are allowed to, to run wanton. And when you have a coach who was subject to an investigation and banned from contacting female students. I'll give you a hint. You go to a school in the South, probably a lot of female students there. So at the height of his fame, 
as the head coach of the LSU football team when he's accused of improper actions, like making students feel uncomfortable with, with the, the text that he's sending, asking them to come to his condo, physically kissing his student and suggesting that they go to his hotel so he could help her career. I got all the problems with that. This isn't like, a, oh, we need to cancel it. Um, this is, I'm a football coach, aka I'm a demigod. And the choices that I make can be talked away based off of what? Winning. Because winning solves everything. Uh, if there are issues with the players, if there are mental health issues, if there are assault issues, well, how much does that player mean to the team? How much does that team mean to the school? And then we'll take that into our equation and we'll figure out how much action we will or won't take. Uh, again, we, we know that there are rampant, rampant issues um, with young people on college that get drunk and, and do not good things. When they're football players and they're representing a school, they're told that any off the field actions will get them suspended or kicked off the team and their careers will be over. Their scholarships will be yanked yet for a coach to have committed these, these offenses. And they are alleged, but it was an internal investigative report. I'm willing to bet that uh, where there's smoke, there's fire here. Whether or not miles had any inappropriate relationships with any of those women that were consensual, non-consensual, I think what we're looking at here is the scope. We're looking at how it was definitely something that a 50 plus year old man should not be doing. And we can't say, Oh, well that happens in college. And uh, you know, Hey, you know, sometimes these, you know, these women or these young men, they're like, they're, they're trying to get their, their careers going and they want to do those things, which is horseshit. That's what it is. If I went and I found a mentor I want to learn from that person about how to make it in the industry that they're in. I don't want to be in a personal relationship with them. And yet, this investigation occurred in 2013, eight years ago. Oh, were they winning championships at that time? Maybe. Maybe they were in the college football playoffs. Maybe they were, maybe there were things that were acceptable at the university at that time. And when I say acceptable, this is a loose term acceptable um, because telling women what they should wear, telling certain people that we're only looking for scholarship students that fit a type of build to rectify stereotypes, telling um, people we only want uh, certain folks with the ability to come in and out of our offices and you know all of these things. We Again, we look at football coaches as demigods. And you have to take them with a bit of a grain of salt and you need to listen when someone says, I think there's a problem here. For an internal investigation in 2013 um, to come back to light, that's, that's very, very bad. That's very, very bad. Um, the report itself is really damning. And according to the report from USA Today, there were standards that were set for student workers to help lure top recruits needed to be in the football program. And the report said they needed to be attractive, blonde, and fit. And existing student employees who didn't meet this criteria could be given fewer hours or terminated, which is illegal, as is everything else I've just described in this report. So you're throwing out the baby with the bathwater here. You're sprinkling 
a lot of bad salt, like salt bay on top of this. And it doesn't get any better the, the more you dig into it. And I think that this comes at a time where college sports in America has had to deal with a reckoning. Many professional sports leagues, of course, uh, have dealt with the effects of COVID-19 and they've lost a lot of revenue. But to be frank, so have a lot of companies in America. For a team that has a multi-million dollar operating budget, does it suck not having fans in the stands? Of course it does. You're, you're looking to get that ticket and that gate revenue. And look, I, I was in college once, you know, tailgating and going to a homecoming football game is pretty awesome. I mean, I went to a division three school. We didn't have a football team. So you got to travel and, and you got to go see some other games, but you can't just rely on that forever. You, you have to have a plan B or a plan C for how you're going to keep the program in the black money-wise. Yet here we are, and there are just more and more instances wherever you look that there are serious rotten parts of the NCAA as a whole, and we're looking at them and we're saying, yeah, yeah, I got you. It's bad. We, had a, we gave him a stern talking to. He learned. I think things will be different from now on. Okay. But you had an internal investigation. Was this guy allowed to retire? Was this guy allowed to have his reputation intact and whose careers did he possibly stall or ruin because they didn't do the things that he wanted to do because he was a demigod and he decided he wanted to have, he wanted to have his, his, his cake and eat it too. Now, again, these are allegations and the investigation that occurred in 2013, I'm sure is going to get looked at with a much tighter scope and there do need to be answers. At some point, you cannot say that if a player physically assaulted a woman that they needed to be held accountable and not hold the, the people accountable on the other side of the field simply because there's not enough of them. Oh, it's very hard to get a, a coach in a winning program. Yes. Winning may solve everything, but culture is the most important thing in a, in a professional sports team without it. I mean, and you can reference any sports movie you want to. It's usually the same story. Oh, got a lot of talent. Don't mesh well. Why don't they mesh well? Because they don't care about the culture. They care about themselves. And when that, when that changes, oh, look, they win championships. Yet, unfortunately, in real life, it's not the reality. You can have a lot of really great players and win championships and have shitty culture. Look at the Florida Gators. I mean, if you, if you take a look at all the players that were on that team and the number of off-the-field incidents, you know, and I think it was that 2013 team, um, or the, sorry, late 2000s, the one that was with Cam Newton and uh, Aaron Hernandez, Tim Tebow. There was a lot that was going on with that team. Probably needs to be a 30 for 30 uh, on that team, but that, that's not, that's not a, an outlier. There are too many schools right now that have those issues. And what's so unfortunate is that here we are, and we're looking at these things and we're saying, hey, look, he denied that he did anything wrong. Yeah. The same way in which a defensive back who gave up a touchdown is going to swear that what he saw in film and what he saw on the field was why he made the call. I didn't do anything wrong, coach. I made the decision I made based off of what I thought I was seeing. Don't you give additional training to that player? Don't you attempt to at least give them a chance to make up for things. And yet here we are talking about something that's super heinous and they were just given the chance to make up.
They weren't even asked questions about it. Well, I mean, there was an investigation, but let's be honest. That's sort of like the fox watching the hen house at this point. I say all that, you know, and it's probably sounding like going off the rails here, but let's, let's be frank. The NCAA has the power it does, and it can use and leverage that power to get multi-million dollar deals for itself to make itself fatter and richer off the backs of players who don't have a voice to be able to advocate for themselves. They don't have, they don't have a voice to advocate for pay for name, image, and likeness. They don't really have health benefits to the point where if they're not on the team and they, they were sustained a traumatic brain injury, like they're kind of on their own. They don't have the voice to step up against oppression. And when they do, people from the outside are telling them, yeah, I'm giving $50,000 a year to the school. So you can, you can just like shut up and dribble, man. Like that's what you can do. You haven't earned it. When that person might not have ever played a snap or ever stepped in the court. Don't get me wrong. We're in March. Love March Madness. If you were to tell me the number one seed right now had legitimate off-the-court issues, I would advocate for that team not playing. We sell sports to our youth as like something of purity. It's fighting against the other team. It's, it's overcoming all odds. It's, it's the 1984 miracle hockey team. Yet, what's the reality is more gritty. It's not as simple as that. It's not, uh, Hey, you just lost today. You weren't the better team. It's well, we, yeah, we lost today, but Hey, I mean, that guy, that guy over there, I think, I think he's on steroids and I think he has a, a domestic violence case. So like, I'm, I'm not saying we got to, you know, put something out about it, but we're going to play him again in a couple of weeks. So like, I mean, I might say something. There are too many intricate layers of tomfoolery in the NCAA and some of those layers prevent players from actually advocating on their own behalf and actually getting anywhere. Again, 1% of the division one NCAA football players make it to the NFL. There's only 53 roster slots on 32 teams. That's a, that's a small, small number. So for a lot of these players, they're going to play two or three years or maybe four years and they're, they're going to take that college degree and they're going to go be someone else, which is fantastic. Not everyone can make it to the league. But don't tell us that everything is fine when clearly there are parts of the league that need serious revision. And I'm not talking like, let's think about changing the coach. I'm talking about if I can prove that the athletic director knew about the improprieties, the athletic director has to go. I don't care what connection he has to the donors or, or she. <clears throat> I don't care how many winning championships they brought in. The players and the coaches are the ones responsible for that, but the players are the ones actually doing it. Okay, The coaches aren't going out there and scoring the touchdowns. They're coming up with the plays that obviously lead to touchdowns, but the players have to execute that. So if you're going to go ahead and hold the draconian standard that the first time a player steps out of line, that's it, everything is taken from them, then it needs to be the same energy across the other side. And I get that a lot of people don't want to hear that. They're going to say, you know, I'm not really a big fan of that. This person brings a lot of championships to our school. And it it might sound a little weird to say, but like, okay, cool. You can hang your hat on that. I donated $50,000 a year to my alma mater. 
And those $50,000 help what? Buy a championship? No. Like you, you donated. That was it. That, that, was, that was your influence, right? So we got to take a comprehensive look. The NFL has had a reckoning. The MLB has had a reckoning. Major League Soccer has had a reckoning. Golf has had a reckoning. NASCAR has had a reckoning. The NBA has had a reckoning. NCAA is like, nah, fam, we're good. We're, we're just going to stay kind of how we are. We're just going to keep doing, doing our thing. And to be frank, like, we're too big to fail. And that's the problem. They are not too big to fail. They are cogs in a machine on the NCAA side. The players, you can argue that there will always be someone who could be able to step up and fill Sam Smith's role if he's a cornerback or a wide receiver or a quarterback or a defensive end and he gets hurt. Yeah, there are a lot of kids who, who want to go out there and, and take that next spot. At the same energy that you're trying to replace players for having off-the-field issues, there are plenty of folks who are qualified and maybe overqualified to act as administrators in training, professional assistants, operations directors, or maybe some folks who just keep these damn donors in line. So we need to look in the mirror and we need to say to ourselves, I think we have a problem here. And I think we need to solve it now. You're probably wondering like, what does this dude know about college sports? Well, to be honest, I'm not a prolific athlete, right? I think, I think Tim and I went over that on the podcast uh, episode one. If you want to go back 43 episodes and listen to it, we encourage you. It's available on Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. I attempted to run indoor track and, and outdoor track, and I was a runner in high school, so I want to do that in college. I ended up getting an injury, um, an overuse injury, which was hilarious. I'll tell you the story sometime, but it's not like – I have the athlete's mindset, right? Um, I'm just a regular guy, right? I was very fortunate to be around, even in Division Three, some great athletes, and, you know, folks we're still friends with today. And, and those guys and gals were, were killers out there on the track. They just were. But I also went to a school in uh, Southern Maine. In my first year, 2006, that women's basketball team, which was already heralded in that region anyways, went to the, uh, the D3 championships. They went, to, they went to the playoffs. It was at the Naismith uh, Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame, right, in Springfield. And we drove down there, and, and we bought tickets, and, you know, we, we definitely pre-gamed, and, and we had a great time supporting. But I just remember everything about those women's basketball players. I remember their hustle. I remember their drive, their tenacity. I remember how friendly they were. I remember how, like, they were superstars on campus, but you could still approach them. You know, there were people who would be very friendly with you. I don't recall many of the men's basketball players being that way. I knew a couple. The men's baseball players, yeah, you know, most of them were, were approachable. Um, but, I mean, let's be frank. At USM in the early 2000s, it was the women's basketball team. And, you know, arguably the women's track and field team that, uh, that, was, that was garnering all the attention. And for all of those people to put – that university on their back and continue to support and geez, provide, I guess, all the entertainment. Like I'll never forget going into the Costello sports complex and, and seeing a packed women's basketball game, just the energy, people yelling, screaming, just like so happy for any of those games to occur. And I imagine it's the same on 
Division One and Division Two, you know, courts. I don't, I don't think it's any different, especially if they make it to the dance. I'm not saying we have to cancel. I'm not saying we have to replace it. I'm saying we need to replicate it. And when there's success, we need to make sure that success finds ways to foster other success. And I'm saying when there are issues with the system, we need to examine it. If you had a car that had a problem, you would fix that problem with the car. The NCAA as a whole is saying, yeah, we have an oil leak. Ugh, we got a flat tire. We have a broken tie rod. But the other three are fine. So like, I think we're going to be good. That ruins the experiences that a guy like me who goes to a Division three school who watches players not play for athletic scholarships, that, 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 that undoes the NCAA dream. It just doesn't work that way for the majority of players who go to these big universities who may have a chance to go and play in the WNBA, to play in the MLB, to play in the NBA. And we're talking about nickels and dimes when they literally are signing multi-million dollar TV deals. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't compute. It's, it's, not, it's not fair in any, in any way, stretch of the imagination. And I just, I don't feel we can sit by and just not have an opinion on it. Oh, there's this, there's this investigation that came out like that's, that's really bad. I'm, I'm sorry that it happened, but um, hey, you know, they beat Alabama that one time. Like, okay, so what? Is making your name on a Wikipedia page or a, a stats page, stats don't matter, more important than the legacy you're trying to leave behind, right? Everyone wants to be like Mike, like Sue Bird, like Pele, like Andre Agassi, but no one wants to actually do the grind. No one wants to put all the hard work in. They just, they just want to get there. They want the accolades. They, they, want, they want the bright lights. And when I say they, I don't mean the athletes because as we've already talked about, the athletes are going to the school, and yes, while they might not be paying out of pocket to live in a dormitory, to go to the cafeteria, it's not like they have spending money. It's not like they can have a job because in order to be a Division One athlete, you have like next to no time. It's more about the fact that when a person brings you three to four times their tuition worth in TV deals or endorsements for your coach, you need to take a look at that, and you need to say, Maybe we need to rethink this. And I think the name, image, and likeness laws, when they come to fruition, I think, of course, California, Florida, and Texas will be some of the first to pass them because they have the, you know, the state support behind it. It will be a slow attrition for the rest of the states to ratify it. But I also do think that like it's what's best in the end. And now I'm not saying that you assign an arbitrary amount to pay each athlete depending on the sport that they are, and then the position they play. Why? Because we all know, just like professional sports, if you're the quarterback, you're getting the lion's share of the contract because there are just only 32 quarterbacks, and it's very difficult to, to get that top dollar. But if you're a top shooting guard and you're bringing a lot of money for gate receipts and concessions at a small school in Southern Maine, do you, do you need to take a look at that? Do you need to say, how do we – come up with a complex equation to find a way to pay people. Yeah, I think you do. And I think that we're stuck in 1983 thinking that we can't possibly pay players because the schools will collapse when we know for a fact 
and the schools survive off tuition alone, and yet their endowments are multi-millions of dollars. It's not genuine to say that they don't have the ability to pay it. It's genuine to say they don't want to pay it because that's, that's more accurate. That's, that's what's actually happening. And it's just super unfortunate. There are sports memories I'm never going to forget, like I've already told you. And the people that I watched play those games didn't get a scholarship. If anything, they did it for the love of the game and because they wanted to see how far they could take their dreams. I'm sure it's the same way at Division II and Division I schools that actually have athletic scholarships they give out. But just because you have an athletic scholarship doesn't mean you have a full ride and you could lose your scholarship and there's only a certain number of scholarships that exist, which is why whenever you see those Rex Chapman alert, the content you're here for videos where there's someone who's a walk-on who gets their full scholarship, it's very difficult to watch one of those videos and not be like, oh shit, who's cutting onions in here? Because you feel for the player. When I see a news thing that comes across and they say, oh, Les Miles signs a new five-year extension worth $8.5 million a year. Oh, Jim Harbaugh signs a 14-year extension for $33 million a year, whatever it is. I don't necessarily look in and go, oh my God, wow, that's so great for the coach. I'm so happy for them. I sort of expect it. You've been around in the sport for 20, 25, 30, 35 years. I expect that everything you've learned over that time has honed you into a person that can walk into a situation and create success out of that. A four-star recruit who comes to your school is known for doing one thing and one thing only, and you pigeonhole them and you say, you need to produce. If you don't produce, hit the road, Jack. It's a very, very ruthless business that occurs on college campuses, and yet the common refrain is, well, they get paid to play a sport someday, so it's not really that big of a deal. They should stop complaining. It's just... It's not a good argument. It's not a good argument at all. It doesn't make sense. And we shouldn't just accept the argument on face value. In closing, what I will say is that college sports are great. You can be critical of their missteps and the areas that they need to improve in and love the fact that you get on a Saturday morning when you're on a campus and you're driving through and you're getting ready to go to a game where you're walking up the steps to a court and you can hear the, the, the crowd just cheering and losing their mind and the players are doing warmups. You can love both things. You can love the fact that college sports gives young men and women an opportunity to be something that they weren't, something that they, they dreamed of being. And you can also say, well, I got problems with the way you administer this program. I'm in the process of editing this podcast, there were changes that came out both relating to the Texas fight song and to the coaching situation Sam talked about earlier in the podcast. Uh, I felt some of the things Sam said were pretty important. So rather than scrap the whole thing, we figured we would just update this on the tail end just to kind of bring everyone up to speed. Thanks again for listening. So while we did talk earlier about the LSU scandal with Les Miles, uh, and the improper investigation. Uh, he was, at the time when we were recording that, he was still an employee of Kansas, all right? Um, he was still the head football coach there. And it has now come out today at a press conference that uh, he has been allowed to mutually uh, part ways with the University of Kansas, um, which will pay him a $2 million buyout. Pretty much they, they, they went and cleared the rest of his contract out. And when they asked the guy, why they didn't fire him. They asked the athletic director why they didn't fire him. 
he kind of said we couldn't really prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he lied to us in the interview when we hired him. And we don't want to get in a long protracted uh, arrangement. So what's best for all parties here and the best of the program is that we just mutually agreed to part ways, which is horseshit. There's no other word for it. Um, USA Today, they have an article and they talk about the investigation, new stuff that I didn't see necessarily when I read the, the last article, that the investigation into Les Miles' conduct took place at LSU from 2009 to 2013, upon which they recommended they fire him in 2013 and they didn't do it. So if you're just thinking about that, that's three years. That's an entire prospect's uh, college career before they would go into the NFL. That's probably hundreds of students' lives who are irrevocably changed because Les Miles decided he wanted to get uh, a certain type of woman to attract football players. They wanted certain people to be around. And for what? Like you let this guy walk away with $2 million in a settlement deal because you're afraid to take him to court. How about every single one of those people who might have been done wrong by him? What about them? Couldn't they collectively just go ahead and sue Les Miles? Which, I mean, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if some of them do. This just goes to show that like college football coaches really do have it all. They have to say in the players that they recruit. They have the, the say in the plays that get called. And they have to say in lives that they change. Uh, and while you want to spin it as much as possible and say that it's all for the good, there is too many instances where it's not. We're talking about a, a scandal with improper conduct with young people. And you have an impressionable person you know, at the university probably getting themselves into – I don't even know if you'd call it like a, a bad situation because that doesn't even do it justice, right? There's there's too many chances there for things to go wrong. And the university, there's no way they didn't know about it, right? Oh, we don't know if he lied to us on the way in the interview. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. If the if if the investigation went on from 2009 to 2013, the only the only way you would know is if someone handed you that document and you just decided not to look at it. It's it's unconscionable. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And until coaches are given the same boot through the door that they give NCAA players for smoking weed or cheating on a test, like the system will not change. The NCAA has too much power. And this to me just, again, reeks of the scandal, like a scandal like this happens almost like once every three or four years. And then we all get really hyped about it. And then we just go, ah, oh, whatever. Well, we need something to do on Saturday. So I guess we'll like, we'll pay attention to it. And it's like that, that takes advantage of the people who are long faithful alumni of a university who really do want to see the program succeed. That's why they donate their money to it. Right. But you've had recruiting scandals where people were trying to, you know, pay people to have sex with potential recruits. You've got this right now where Les Miles is pretty much trying to make sure that he can set his house up the way that he wants it to be. Uh, and that's not for players. That's for, eye candy or, or, or what, like what culture is he trying to set there? Like for a football team that didn't win a whole lot, like how is this acceptable? How is it acceptable to say, we don't know if he lied to us. We don't want to embarrass the university. You already embarrassed the university by hiring a dude that had a black spot on his record. That's the problem. Kansas. You can't allow a dude to, to physically walk away from a program. He's already besmirched the name of it. And you're not doing yourself any favors by being, extremely weak with the punishment. Uh, I'm sure there'll be plenty of other hot takes that will come out about it, but I just wanted to wrap that up. That to me just seems unbelievable. Unbefucking believable. I, 
again, what do I know, right? I'm, I'm a guy who went to a Division three university. We didn't have a football team. The sports programs that we did, we were really, really heavy into, and we loved those athletes, but they played, honestly, for the love of the game. Like, maybe they got, you know, academic scholarships, but they didn't get, they didn't get paid. They didn't have the influence. They didn't necessarily have a path cut to professional sports in the way that some of these D1 programs do. And for a guy to coach the team that was pretty much making 2.3 to 2.4 million a year for him to be part of a misconduct investigation. And you just say, well, it happened at the last, uh, happened at the last university. I mean, we didn't really know about it when, when we hired him, he's never done anything wrong here. Like, okay. Yeah. He's never done anything wrong at your program. Had this report not come out. Could he have the preponderance? to do it again at your university. And I think the answer to that question is yes. And I don't think that he should have got a job, but I don't think he should be walking away with $2 million because he's been paid many of millions of dollars. Uh, and I, I just don't think it's, it's, it's not acceptable to me at all. I don't think it's acceptable outcome to um, the members of LSU who clearly were going to be affected by this. And do I feel bad for Kansas because they have to find a new football coach? No, I don't. This is part of the job, right? There are so many, coaching opportunities that are out there and college coaches, maybe they make the jump, maybe they don't, but it, like they're insulated. They have power, they have influence and they are these demigods in much the way that some of these division one players could be viewed as demigods, but those players are on a leash at the end of the day. They can't really get too far from the nest because bad things will happen. They'll lose their scholarship. They'll get kicked out. Coaches seem to get away with pretty much whatever they want. And while that's a uniquely American thing, I believe it is worse for the future of the NCAA if they get more of these scenarios. And I, I just think they missed the mark on this. All right. One last follow-up here before we let you out with this episode of Sassamater Podcast, season two, episode two, talking about Texas, right? This morning, the university released their commission work, which was nearly 100 pages long, on the Eyes of Texas Commission, which is a commission that they, uh, the university put together to go and, and find out about the song and its effect. Well, I mean, if you listen to anything I, I needed to say earlier, what I am about to say will probably not shock you because it's the exact opposite of, of what I surmised. Most notably, according to Texas Monthly, the panel that was convened failed to uncover any racist intent in the lyrics, nor could it find historical connection between the lyrics or anything said or written by Robert E. Lee, the Confederate general, as been previously believed, though it did find connections to different Confederate generals. Okay. Um, listen. You have a, a song that's sung to the hymn of a minstrel song that has racist undertones. It's it's not it's not difficult, folks. Like you just listen to it. Whether there's no intent doesn't absolve the fact that the song has to change based off of the tune, based off the tune that, that it's sung to, based off the fact that like if you take a look at the lyrics, there are probably things there that you need to change. And you have a hundred pages, which is going to have videos and extensive footnotes. But basically, what you said was. Yeah, we know the song was written in the early 1900s, and we know it was most likely performed by students, white students, in blackface. And we know that that really perpetuates a nasty stereotype about minstrel shows. But you know what? Like, it's about Texas history and heritage. Like, no, it's not. Come on. Like, 
the amount of work that they had to go in to put this song to figure out that there's no racist intent, but there are connections to a Confederate general does not absolve the connection to the Confederate general does not mean that the song couldn't be possibly tied to that. And it does not mean that the song should not have to reckon at all. That's that's I'm not saying cancel the song. I'm not saying replace it. I think those are fine alternatives. I would be very, very happy to hear what the commission actually decides they want to do, because what this sounds like is a hundred pages of, yeah, we got it. It's history. It's tough, but we're going to have to kind of stick with this. It is who we are. And it's like, no, no, I, I, I just don't, I don't buy that. I don't think that necessarily, I, I don't think at all that this gives Texas a pass. If you can come up with a hundred pages of extensive footnotes and videos to, to determine if the song had connection to a Confederate general, you've got the plenty of research there to, to know that if it dates back to that time, what the general consensus of the song must have been. And for the commission to say that just because the song was performed at a minstrel show doesn't mean that it was written with racist intent misses the mark. That's like, Hey, don't look at that car that's going to cross the street as you're about to get smacked by an Amtrak train. Like you're completely missing the report here. It's like, Hey, look at this left hand over here. Like, don't pay attention to this. We know it's bad and we were going to do better. That's what this is. This commission is a hundred pages of Texas saying we're wrong. We acknowledge it. We promise to do better. Wink, wink, which means nothing is going to happen. Nothing of substance. It's super bad that the song has those connotations and no one really kind of brought it to light. It's super bad in 2021. We're uncovering rocks and looking for things. And we're saying, why should we have to explain this to you? You know that this is not right. And it's also super wrong that alumni and donors are referring to students at that alma mater, the place that they're giving money to every single year. And like I said earlier, they're saying, if something offends a certain demographic of people, maybe they should go somewhere else. If it upsets the blacks, then the blacks should go somewhere else. Like I can't even really like say that without cringing because it's just like, that should never be a word or a line that comes out of someone's mouth in that connotation. If you're going to spend a hundred pages trying to tell me that the the lines in this song don't necessarily have racist intent when they were brought to life at a minstrel show whose point is thinly veiled racism. Like, come on, guys. I, I guess we can give the, 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 the president of UT some props. I mean, he wrote an email last week to the university according to Texas Monthly, that stated he wanted to make UT a pioneer of the new model for hard conversations. And he suggested that the Eyes of Texas report as a first step in that process. What conversation are we having? The hard conversation where you look at us in the, in the, in the eyes and you say, we know this is wrong, but it's not going to change. And he goes on to say, the conversation on social media suggests we can't solve problems together. But when we gather face-to-face, -face, we naturally gravitate towards humility, empathy, and problem-solving. Yeah, that's, that's not it. That's not it, fam. You, you completely missed the mark here. 
This isn't social media says it's wrong, so we need to be upset about it. This is, if I were to turn in a college paper about the eyes of Texas and I missed a huge part or a huge connection and I based my thesis on something I could not verifiably prove, you would fail that paper. So why does the University of Texas get to get their own commission and they just get to say, oh yeah, yeah we, we understand it's problematic, but we don't think it was written with that intent. Can you really do that? Can you really be impartial? And I'm not, I'm not really sure you can. And this is not a scandal that the university wants to be going through. Understanding that the future of what you have is based off of the students you recruit, the students you acquire, the students that, that graduate and go on and then, you know, heap praise on you. I, I get that donations are important, you know, part of the university's lifeblood. But in no way, shape, or form should you really be having a non-independent commission, like kind of look at this. I, I don't know. To, to me, that just seems like that's something that's not, that's not very good at all. Um, I, I really just think like, again, I, I just think they missed the mark. You know, it, this is just terrible. Like, we should not be talking about these things still. Like, think about this. Like, you don't even get a, a truly independent committee because you have former athletes, current students, historians, alumni. You have everyone who would, who would possibly make the argument that, like, oh, I know it's problematic, but, like, ugh, is it, though? Like, you can't possibly think about how the song could or could not have an effect because the spotlight wasn't on you. You're in your own little corner of Texas. You can sing it as loud as you want and no one really pays attention. Yet when the spotlight's on you, for you to come back and say, yeah, we understand it's problematic, but uh, hey, the song unites us and, and holds us accountable to our institution's like values. No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. It, it's, it's a tradition that you're afraid to change. And sometimes traditions have to be changed. And that means, oh, like the president said, you need to have a hard conversation. And that hard conversation is looking in the mirror and realizing you probably got it wrong. So there you have it. Episode two of season two of Stats Don't Matter. We thank you very much for joining and listening, downloading, sharing, subscribing to this podcast. Uh, shout out to Jay Wakefield for the sick brew. And shout out to all of you, the listeners. You know, Starting this brand new season, we're going to talk uh, some Major League Baseball and NBA here pretty soon. We're just about 20 days away from opening day of Major League Baseball, so... Uh, not a lot of fans in the stands, but you know, I think we're going to get actually a full season instead of, you know, debating back and forth between the commissioner and the union, how many games, 120, get down to 60, maybe we'll get 50, who knows what we'll get. I mean, spring training's already going on, pitchers and catchers are reporting. There has been some good preseason baseball. And I know that's like kind of a weird thing to say, right? Like preseason baseball or preseason any sport is like, it's like a consolation prize. I'm just saying, when when I see the Red Sox beat up on a team, I feel good. And then when I get a you know an athletic or a, a worldwide leader or a Fox Sports or a Yahoo Sports notification that they lost like you know 13 to, to three or something, I'm like, all right, well this game doesn't count. But you know for the win, it's actually just it's a good thing to kind of get it going. So sports like spring have sprung, uh, and and I think I think we're gonna have some good stuff this year. I really do. I think it's, it's a good season for us. Uh, we appreciate all the support that y'all have given us for the Sassamitter podcast, and we will talk to you soon. Cheers.